You are listening to part three of a conversation with Ronald Neeson on childhood history and critique. Parts one and two can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. The the cover of the cover of, of your book has uh, a picture of at least one of the sacred boxes. Right. The uh, testifier could place an object into mm-hmm. the box as this notion of leaving behind the trauma, in a sense, or putting it in a place. Right. And you say of it, whatever else this ritual accomplishes, it also brackets the testimony within a kind of ontological invulnerability. There can be no contestation of opinion, no alternative historical narrative with any broad power of persuasion when it runs up against the perceived infallibility of sacred truth. Could I ask you to talk a little bit more about what you observed there in terms of the sacred box, uh, how you were trying to problematize it, how we can understand this, not in a dismissive way, but to understand that there are always consequences beyond intentions within any ritual. Right, yeah. Um, so the there is a sacred box that followed the commission. I call it sacred. Um, that's my way of framing it. It was just referred to as the Bentwood box. It was the yeah. symbolic focal point of the of the commission. Yeah. It was it was done by a very talented young artist by the name of Luke Marsden, who's a Coast Salish artist. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of work, very powerful. And it's, it looks like it's carved and then painted, so it's three di- it has this three-dimensional outside surface. Right. It's, sometimes they're referred to as curved boxes. So the, so the Northwest Coast peoples had these boxes yes. to store uh, oolican oil or things that needed to preserve. Okay. Preserved. They were receptacles for sacred, for, for regalia, for, for special costumes. So they used them as basically stored. So it has a history in the culture, and it here it's an ineffable space. Right. An unspeakable space. That's where you get the word sacred. So he, what, what the artist did was take some of the traditional motifs and replace them with motifs that reflected the schools, including the front piece, which which depicts his grandmother, who'd been pushed down a flight of stairs in a residential school. Her fingers were broken. Yeah. And in the last years of her life, she explained to him what had happened to her. She'd been silent about it. Yeah. And, and he depicted this with, with, her, with her sorrowful face and her broken fingers as epitomizing the residential school experience, the powerlessness of the children and the... And the way that experience would carry over into adulthood. So she's dis- she's depicted as an elder with her gray hair. Yeah. Elsewhere in the box, he depicts um, Inuits and Métis, and and the churches are depicted with the with the cross that circles the top of the box. So so it is intended to broaden out from his grandmother's experience to be inclusive of all those who went to residential schools. It's a very very powerful. Um, symbolic representation of what the TRC was doing. Yeah. Now, when the TRC began its work, it didn't have that much significance at all. In the first first uh, hearing in Winnipeg, Marsden was introduced and told his story. 
But later on, it began to have increasingly symbolic significance as objects were deposited in, in more of a ritual manner. Yeah. With people holding hands of an object. It could be a video, a book, a, a blanket that was uh, used in the residential schools. Anything that could inform the work of the commission in a material or uh, or a documentary way. Yeah. Um, and it had two a, a number of a number of effects that I was able to see that that contributed to the way the commission framed the testimony that it was that oriented it towards a certain kind of experience that bracketed out the the uh, residential school experiences the commission was presenting it from the wider understanding of the harms of um, these total institutions, as Goffman calls them, and the ideas behind them. The ritual nature occurred in the second or third commission, a major event, and and was a part of the yeah the testimony that was invited by the by the commissioners mm-hmm. people who sort of went on to a to a um, onto a speaker's list and wanted to to provide what was called expressions of reconciliation yeah um, and this is uh this is just one of many ways that the commission framed and shaped testimony in in a particular direction oriented towards the narrative of cultural loss that was missing from the courts. It yeah. wanted to really make this case of cultural genocide. Even though cultural genocide has no traction in international law, yeah. uh, it wanted to argue that side of the schools. Yeah. Um, and it did it by cultivating a particular kind of testimony, not just through the sacred box and the ontological invulnerability that it brought about, but through preparing people for for giving testimony, not just giving the, them the courage to testify, but providing templates for the kind of testimony that was preferred by the commission. And, and your book uh, details this uh, in terms of both running you know, snippets and, and broadcasting them in videos prior to right. the event, uh, selecting who would go first. Right. Uh, and then, therefore, by t- those two means is the ones I can recall, where you would create a dominant narrative right. and that could be added to, and it doesn't mean that it was hermetically sealed and there wasn't unpredictability, sure. but it is an effective means of framing, right. of framing so this- what the message would be. Right, and this isn't to say that the truths that people brought under those circumstances were were any less uh, real, personal, important, significant for understanding the schools. But it, as part of an ethnographic project, it was important for me to understand how truth was framed, produced. and represented, and produced. Yeah, and and it and it is significant though that in a vac maybe vacuum is too strong a word. I don't mean it in that sense, but at least in a space where some other uh, judicial methods of 
subpoena, cross-examination, um, you know, the disclosure, rules of disclosure mm-hmm. in a more adversarial setting. Right. Those all being re- removed, these kinds of, of, uh, of uh, rules of engagement or exchange set up and become predominant. Right. And I think, yeah, this is what the commission intended. Yeah. They wanted it to be a space for survivors so designated to tell their stories. They wanted them to feel comfortable. They didn't want them to be confronting their abusers. Um, Yeah. uh, And um, that was how they negotiated the mandate of the commission. And, um, And that term, that term survivor also draws on you know, an existing discourse about trauma. It defines right. what has happened in particular ways. It provides right. a narrative as well. And survivor becomes maybe one of the most important nouns, becomes instantiated as a as a person, a type right. of person. A survivor is anyone who has attended right. school. And there's a line between um, what survivors will eat. I mean, they had their separate food. Right. At these events. Right. They had support persons so that they actually walked around and were identifiable. Right. And, and special, and tables. And so, so the survivor becomes. And rest areas and so on. Yeah. The, the so this is, the survivor is not produced by the corporal punishment or the sexual abuse or even the departure from the family. The survivor is produced by the um, discourse of the TRC and what built up to it. And right. really back that term appears in the eighties as well. Of course. It's, it's, it's a post Holocaust. It's a post Holocaust term. So it begins, it begins, but it, but it needs a structure to become what's visible. Right. You know, and I think that this is important for the analytics, right? To understand how events get linked and a history gets made. Right. People, I'm afraid, will interpret this, as I've said before, as being an apology right. for for the event, for what happened. And I would hate for that to happen, because that's uh, not what's intended. In fact, there's a way to look at the limits of the commission in the hope that they might, in some ways, possibly be overcome in some ways, and for people who've experienced harm in other forms, in other ways to have more of a voice that isn't excluded by the bracketing of this experience in particular ways. Well, let me, let me give you an example and give, uh, and allow you to respond to it. I have recently attended a talk by, um, Chief Leslie Whiteye, uh, leader of the Chippewas in, uh, Southwestern Ontario here. She had her grandfather just up on the, uh, screen and, and her grandfather had, had uh, been an attendee to residential schools. And um, he was then categorized as a survivor through that experience, and she was talking about this. And this is, I think, very important. It's important to to hear in whatever manner you can, if you're an audience, about an important part of our history as Canadians. Mm-hmm. But when I, when, I, when I looked at the picture of him, I immediately was drawn to something different. I'm a I'm a veteran of the uh, United States military, and I immediately knew that he was a combat veteran in Vietnam, and he was in uh, the Airborne Rangers and uh, was an infantryman as well. You can tell that by the the, the uh, 
insignias on what he was wearing. Mm-hmm. And he became framed entirely in terms of the residential school. Right. And then at the end, as a side, she said, oh, yeah, he was a, he was a soldier in Vietnam, as if it was an aside. Right. And I couldn't help but think to myself, my God, if there's one thing that a residential school would prepare you for, it would be being in the Army. Right. It is so similar. Yet her words about his service in the U.S. military and Vietnam was praiseworthy. Right. And the positioning of the residential school was rightfully one of condemnation. And as someone who is in some ways connected to, I have some shared experience with this person, I, met, I, I immediately said, no. We need to also think about the disciplinary mechanisms that turn someone into a soldier and allows the conduct of Vietnam to happen. There's a message being, there's a lesson being dropped out of the historical consciousness. I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a, uh, one of the, uh, one of the stories that a priest told me that I guess didn't, that didn't find its way into the book, but that struck me as significant since, um, talking about the uh, school in Labrette, I forget its exact name. In Labrette, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. he was very proud of the fact that they gave um, drills to the the male students. They were, you know, they spent so many, so much time per day doing parade drills, yes, around. And he said, as a, in in summarizing the effect of that, he said, "We gave them personalities, yes, so that a parade drill gives you." assimilating yourself into this sort of command and obedience structure is something that to him gave these students personality. By the way, the the notion of survivor that was inherited by the TRC also came from the Vietnam War. It was an extension. The Vietnam survivors were one of the first extensions of the concept of the Holocaust survivor into contemporary experience as was survivor of sexual abuse. So it sort of expanded from the Holocaust, included other kinds of phenomena, of which of which uh, illegitimate war was one. So your example points to somebody who is a survivor in, in two senses. In two, in two senses, but one sense of their... One, one part well, of their story drops out and gets reconfigured. Right. And that dropping out I find frightening because it's precisely the connection that is part of the history that I would like to tell, I guess. Right. I know that's an assertion on my own part, and I guess we're all appropriating, right? Right. But it seems to me worthwhile to be able to add to that discourse to say, yes, these are monstrous institutions, and let's remember where they come from. Let's and look what at they're their, linked to. I think that the the project for people who are looking at these phenomena critically are to are to break down the arbitrary boundaries of inclusion and exclusion that are shaped by their mandates, and to think about them more broadly and critically. Um, your approach to it goes uh, further than I did in the book to a kind of a a Foucauldian project that's looking at these institutions and their consequences um, very, very broadly. Yeah. Um, 
it's difficult for a commission, of course, uh, a truth and reconciliation commission to take to take on a project like that. And and one thing that just for for our listeners, one thing that you, your book is, I think, incredible at is the way that it draws this edge. You draw out this, but you also are really clear that the commission and the activists are responding to an environment and they have to respond to the law and they right. have to respond to the Canadian state. Right. And they're playing the cards they've been dealt. Exactly. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not making choices. Yes. But to place the blame, if, if we could call it blame, if we turn critique into blame, that would be unfortunate. It would be. Because they are trying to bring to light a very difficult, important truth, and they can only operate within the structures that are available. Exactly so. Um, and whether intentionally or not, those structures created certain boundaries of inclusion and exclusion that prevented the Commission from really looking more broadly at the phenomenon, that prevented it from even considering identical institutions that had happened in other in other circumstances, run by other powerful agencies. organizations, organizations, and the, which which have the same disciplinary procedures, which put yes. the same subject position on the child, which yes. actually have the same cultural ethno assimilationist agenda, right? Similar ideas about what human progress and, is. And what's interesting to me is that people who came to the microphone pointed this out again and again, again and again. It was a yes, phenomenon that I. Re- a phenomenon that I refer to as the while I have the microphone. While I have the microphone. While I have the microphone. I, I'm going to tell you about my experience as you want to hear it, right? Yes. Uh, right? And then when they're done, it's like, oh, and by the way, while I have the microphone, dot, dot, dot. Whether they say that explicitly or not, there's the yeah. while I have the microphone pause. And then they say, what's what's really bothering, bothering them? What's really getting at them? What's... And, and many times this brings us into the present outside of the residential schools, right. onto, onto the reserve or into the band governments or into right. the relationship with the federal or government. Policing or welfare yes. agencies or any of those things. Unemployment. Ex- yes. Uh, unexplu- un- excluded by the mandate of the commission again. Yeah. And again, to give the commission credit, they were very patient in listening to these stories. Yeah. Uh, in not interrupting them. We were not using a gavel to say, sorry, we have to stay on we, point. We, Ron, this has been uh, uh, a great treat for me. Uh, oh, and for me, actually. I, I just uh, I admire your book. There's so much good work being produced that this is the kind of book that I, uh, you come across and you say, well, now I'm going to have to make space for this writer uh, in my head, in my, in my running bibliography, because uh, what terrific, terrific work. Well, that's very, very kind. I appreciate that. And it's especially encouraging for me to have somebody, uh, an interlocutor who really seems to have understood it deeply and who's sort of going beyond the some of the reactions to the position I've been getting that, uh, that seem to misunderstand the main yeah. points of the work that are starting from a different premise. Perspective, yeah. Perspective. I see myself as somebody who who thinks and writes historically as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has sort of di- different challenges and looks at the uh, production of truth differently than somebody who's looking towards uh, 
justice, for example, yeah. or some other outcomes of a commission like this. That concludes a conversation with Ronald Neeson on childhood, history, and critique, recorded February 2016.